Well, good morning, everyone. So grateful that you are here today worshiping. I have such gratitude for our worship team led by Pastor Zach. We've worshiped in dedicating John Wilder, celebrated mothers today, and worshiped in song. And now let's worship in the Word, shall we? We have begun this series through speaking of revival, looking at examples of revival, men of revival. And our pastor, Pastor Bobby, asked us at the beginning to pray, both for individual revival, also for corporate church revival. And I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands, but I will ask you this. Are you praying for revival? Would you join us in that? It's a call to prayer. And he he asked us these questions. He he said, do you want more? Then he put it a better way. He said, a better question is this. Do you want God to have more of you? Are we desperate for his presence, for the gift of his presence? And as we continue our focus on revival today, we're going to look at a church. The revival that happened at the church at Antioch. It was an amazing thing. And and Antioch not only experienced revival, but by the grace of God and through the obedience, they were a catalyst for revival throughout the entire Roman Empire, through the known world in those days. So we're going to look at how revival, what revival looked like in a church. And church is an important biblical concept, is it not? In fact, the word church, or ekklesia, the Greek, it appears in the book of Acts more than any other book in the New Testament. And I do want to do a poll today with a show of hands. I want to ask you first, how many of you went to church regularly during your growing up years? Can I see your hands? Okay. About how many of you began to go to church when you were college age or older? Can I see your hands? Yeah, some of you. Yeah. No, no harm. God moves in different ways in our lives, does he not? So for those of you that know me, here's my joke for the day. I'm going to give you advance warning, okay? <laughs> Here it is. I used to have a drug problem when I was in junior high. Here's the drug problem. My mama drugged me to church every Sunday, every Sunday night, and every Wednesday. (laughs) I got a bigger laugh than I thought, really. I think my delivery was bad in the first service. (laughs) So let's look how the Lord sent revival to this church at Antioch and And let's look at it through the lens of Scripture, shall we? And we want a survey. Do you guys remember that word survey? I used it a few weeks ago. It means to view something or consider something comprehensively. It means to take more than just a quick glance, but a long, lingering look at something. More than a once over, and then you look away. So I want us to look carefully through the lens of Scripture to survey this church in Antioch, shall we? 
We're going to begin in the book of Acts chapter 11. I invite you to stand if you're able in honor of reading God's word. And we'll begin in verse 19 and go through 21. Luke writes this. He says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Maybe some of you remember that persecution. He was stoned and killed. And it caused a great scattering, a great diaspora, if you will. Those that were scattered because of Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. This is to the north. Cyprus was an island off the coast in the Mediterranean Sea. And look at this. They speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I want you to notice a map of Antioch, a map of, of that part of, of the world. I've circled Syrian Antioch and read there's two Antiochs in the ancient world. This is the one that Luke is referring to. If you'll notice, Damascus is about halfway between Antioch and Jerusalem. It's about 300 miles. Antioch was a very important Roman city. Uh, city. In fact, it was the third largest city in the Roman kingdom, the Roman Empire. Population estimates are very difficult in ancient civilization, but archaeologists think that there is, was anywhere from 150,000 to 500,000 people in the city. The city was known for its culture and commerce. It was a port city. The nations gathered in the city. It had an international population. People from all over the known world were there to do business and trade and commerce and art. It was also a vile place, a profligate place. It was a place full of pagan worship and sexual immorality of, in ways that we can't even describe. And so it's in this setting that these Jewish Christians from Jerusalem after the death of Stephen came. And as verse 19 says, some of them, those Jewish Christians, would only speak to Jews. At this moment in time, 10 years or so after the resurrection of Christ, some of the church in Jerusalem had become so narrow-minded and their beliefs that Christianity was only for those who were born Jews. They'd forgotten the words of Jesus right before he died when he said that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Aren't we glad? But I want you to watch this. Look at verse 20 with me. Luke says, But there were some of them, these Jewish believers, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. And by the way, Cyprus was that island. Cyrene was a country in North Africa. 
and their, their predominant inhabitants were black. Some of those men, and I, don't you love it, that, but there were some. Some of those men, those men who came to Antioch and they spoke to the Hellenists. Now, Hellenists were Gentiles. They were everyone that's not a Jew. So those men spoke to the non-Jews. They preaching the Lord Jesus. These men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they weren't the upper echelon of Judaism. They were not the intellectually elite like Paul. They didn't have the pedigrees. But they heard the command of Jesus. When Jesus left the earth, do you remember? Go and make disciples of what? All people. Well, it's ethne, it's nations. They took his command to heart. They saw that in Antioch, the nations were represented. They preached the gospel to them. They didn't care that even though it was unlawful for them as Jews to even speak to a Gentile, they didn't care. The command of Jesus overrode that. What a contrast. Those who are willing to get out of their comfort zone. What's the result? Look at verse 21 with me. Here's the result. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Now that could mean two things. One is judgment. (laughs) But in this case, it meant great favor. God's great favor was with them. Why? Because they were willing to go to the nations and obey Christ. The hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Another revival happened. That word great number means thousands. Thousands came to faith because these men were willing. So as we take a lingering look today at the church at Antioch, as we look at some of the catalysts for revival, not a formula, but just as we observe I've listed five things if you're a note taker. And here's the first one. There were some members of that church who were willing to think outside the box and obey the commands of Jesus. Pastor Trey spoke in the announcements about the movie Jesus Revolution. I don't want to be too much of a spoiler alert, but I have to tell you one story from that movie, may I? Chuck Smith is a pastor of a little church called Calvary Chapel. His church is small. He's praying for revival, much like we are. And God began to send him folks. It's a cool story, so that's all I'll tell you. But these folks were hippies. It's 1971. They didn't even wear shoes. Many of them came from drug backgrounds. and Many of them had never been in church. So when they came to his church, they didn't have shoes. Their feet were dirty. Some of the members were complaining that they were getting dirt on the carpet. <laughs> but because he welcomed them, because he thought outside the box, and by the way, his job was in jeopardy, but revival breaks out. The Jesus revolution began. There's no telling. Half of my high school class of 1972 came to faith because of the Jesus revolution. I was one of those. Praise God for people that think outside the box. Amen? But this news 
of what was happening in Antioch gets back to Jerusalem, to the mothership. News always gets back to the Jer Jerusalem, does it not? <laughs> it always gets back. Whenever anything is happening, whenever the Lord might be moving, there will be somebody who will run to those who are supposed to be important and in charge and say, do you know what's going on? They get their own sense of importance by being busybodies. Somebody goes to Jerusalem and perhaps they said something like this. They're preaching to the Gentiles in Antioch. Did you know that? It's bad enough that Peter spoke to Cornelius, that's the Apostle Peter, who God had already told him that the gospel was to go to the Gentiles. It's bad enough that that happened, but at least Cornelius was a God-fearer. These people are vile pagans. <laughs> you better do something about it. And they did. The church sends Barnabas to investigate. Look with me at verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church, this revival, this magnificent move of God in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Well, who was this guy? Well, what we know from Scripture is that he was from that island of Cyprus. He was a Jew from the tribe of Levi. He's a, he's a priest. Barnabas is not even his real name. Joseph was his real name. But Barnabas became his nickname, which means son of encouragement. That's who this guy was. He was a generous man. Look at verse 24 with me again. It says, for he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now watch this. A great many people were added to the Lord. Church, listen. He was sent there to be a spy. But instead, what happens is, is when he gets there, because he was a good man, because he was full of the Holy Spirit, and because he sees evidence of grace, are we not glad for the grace of God? He saw the grace of God at work. He saw a true movement of God outside of the Jewish faith. And he was glad. So instead of being a spy, he becomes the leader of the church. Isn't that amazing? Where would we be? Where would you be without the grace of God? And I want to say to you this morning, beloved church, that without the grace of God, there would be no revival. So what does Barnabas do next? Consolidate his power? Move politically so that the leaders of the church will continue to support him? Establish his position as the lead guy? Make sure that I ensure my future? Watch what he does. Look at verse 25. Luke says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. This is one of those instances where the English translation does not really do justice to the real meaning of Scripture here. The idea of looking for Saul, 
The word that's used there is a desperate, relentless search. The best example I can think of in our context is that have you ever lost, for those of us who are parents, have you ever lost sight of your child for just a moment? Like in a mall or a store? Do you remember that feeling? You want time to stop? That's what's happening here. Barnabas is so intent on finding this man and bringing him back to Antioch. Barnabas knew Saul. Saul becomes Paul. He'd known him for about 10 years. After Saul comes to faith on the road to Damascus, he goes back to Jerusalem. Very few people in Jerusalem had anything to do with him. And you can understand why. He kills some of them. He kills some of the Christians. But he's a changed man. He's remarkably changed. He's been gone three years. He's been stripped of everything. He comes to Jerusalem, meets with a few folks. Barnabas vouches for him. But because of threats on Saul's life, they send him back to his hometown. And it's been about seven years since he's been gone. So here's the second attribute we see in this church at Antioch. Is that their leaders demonstrated an other's orientation. Barnabas felt the greatness of the work in Antioch. He saw evidences of grace. He carried some of that weight as the primary leader. And he remembered the zeal and the strong character of Saul. So he goes and looks for him. He knew that he needed the presence of one who was wise, whose zeal was to be an example to all, and whose peculiar mission that to the Gentiles had already been miraculously declared. So Barnabas, a man who understood that a person wrapped up in themselves makes a very small package. Barnabas, this leader, this main leader, finds Saul, brings him to Antioch, and the rest is church history. I want to tell you, church, this morning, speaking from my personal experience, our pastor is like Barnabas. Bobby Pruitt is like Barnabas in this way. He is. So let's look at verse 26. Barnabas finds him. He brings him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Pastor Trey, wouldn't you like to have been in some of those classes? I wish we had the, the DVDs. <laughs> he teaches them for a year. And get this, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now let me give you some of the backstory of that term. That term didn't start out to be a term of endearment. It started out to be a term of, of derision. It was intended to mean it was a Roman term, the party of Christ. But what had originally been meant as a term of derision by now had been turned into a term of honor. It's a wonderful thing to be called a Christian. Amen? Even in our culture, we may be moving to where that term is not so popular. Should we be angry over that? No. We should recognize that it's a badge of honor that we carry the name of Christ. Look at chapter 13 with me as we go. There were some in the church at Antioch 
prophets and teachers. I mentioned this earlier, the order is important. In the ancient literature, when Luke mentions people by order, it's by order of importance. So Barnabas is the number one leader. Then you have Simeon, who was called Niger. You have Lucius of Cyrene. You have Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. What amazing thing in one sentence. You have Barnabas, the spy, who's now become the leader. You have two black men, one from North Africa. Most likely there's a whole cool story here, and I can't check, but most likely related to the Simon of Cyrene that carried the cross of Christ. You have those two men here. Then you've got a guy like Manan. Look, he grew up in the palace. He was a lifelong friend of Herod, a vicious ruler. How does he get there? We don't know the story. I bet that's a cool story. And then you have Saul. You have this multicultural, multi-ethnic leadership in this church. And it brings us to the third attribute we see here, that their church leadership was integrated. And church, when I say integrated, it's in a far richer sense of the normal use of that word today. Not only an integration of black and white, but an integration of those from high levels of society like Manan and those who are from the lower levels of society. It has an integration of Greek and Jew. Amazing. Amazing what the grace of God does. Amen? <laughs> and then we see the fourth thing is that this church was ascending church. Look at verse 2. and I'm, I'm messing my guy up. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll just read it out. I changed the, the script up here. Here's verse 2 of Acts 13. It says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, this is the church at Antioch, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And that brings us to the fourth attribute, is that this church was a sending church. They send out Barnabas and Saul. The rest of the Acts narrative from chapter 13 on is the story, not a biography of Saul, but a story of the witness of what God did because this church was obedient to the commands of Christ. Revival came throughout the Roman Empire in amazing ways. Cities were changed by the gospel. Economies of city were changed because of their faithfulness. But church, storm clouds, storm clouds were brewing on the horizon. This group of men that came, that would only speak to Jews, they had some other things in this party of circumcision that they've been called as well. They believed that to be a Christian, you had to observe Jewish custom and practice. And I want us to remember, and this is the bottom of your notes if you're a note taker, this statement. As we pray for revival, as we, as we petition the Father and ask Him for revival, both in our individual lives and as a church, what we should remember and always remember is that revival, whether it's individual or corporate, will always be accompanied by adversity. Always. 
So as you pray for revival in your life, beloved, beloved, expect it. It's coming. One of the most troubling passages in the entire Acts narrative is found in chapter 15. And it's verse 1. Look at it with me. So some men came down from Judea. In other words, they came from the church in Jerusalem. These were believers, supposedly. And they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Church, you will not hear me use this word very often. But this is heresy. This is a lie from the pits of hell. It negates the cross. Understandably, this created an uproar in the church. And I would say to you this morning that the hardest of all ideas for human beings to grasp is the idea that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Why? Why is that so? Because someone always wants to add something to it. We are saved by the grace of God. We're saved alone. We were dead in our sin and Christ died for us and was gloriously resurrected. He was buried. And because of that shed blood, we have payment for our sin in full, right? Did we have anything to do with that? These men wanted to add something to the gospel. And Paul and Barnabas rallied to the defense of the flock in Antioch. They had great dissension and debate with that crew. They fought fiercely for the truth and against the wedge that they were trying to drive between the Jew and the Gentile in the church. And so after this great meeting, and I, I don't want to be cynical here and call it a business meeting. You know, business meetings in church are not a good idea, generally speaking, right? <laughs> they had this council in Jerusalem. And this council makes a decision and they, they decide that we're not going to force the, the church of Antioch to be circumcised. And you can fill in the blank for today, right? Or is your mind going there, right? There's things that some denominations force you to do, right? To be part of them. Am I making sense to anyone? Okay. Gospel plus something is never, never right. So instead of circumcision, they send this letter and say, do these four things and we'll be cool. Don't eat meat offered to idols. Don't drink, eat blood. Stay away from something strangled and avoid fornication. Duh. Right? That's what they do. So as we take one last lingering look at this church, here's the fifth thing that I want us to see this morning. Is when the church of Antioch gets this news, these four things, they responded to this adversity, to this news adversity with joy. With joy. Even though this letter with these findings was statesmanlike, and, and I believe the letter at least was a weakness, if not an error. At least they didn't, they didn't require them to be circumcised. But why mention those other things? Because the gospel plus something is not right. But yet, I wasn't there. 
So I want to be cautious. But even so, how did they respond? They respond with joy. Acts 15 tells us they were joyous because of some, in that letter there was some encouragement and that's what they found and picked out. Dr. Charles Stanley was gathered to his people a few weeks ago, pastor for 49 years of First Baptist Atlanta. I've heard this story and, and I, didn't, I didn't hear, it wasn't him recounting the story, it was his son, Andy Stanley, and one of the members of the, of the youth group, Louis Giglio, maybe you're familiar with those names. They were telling the story about what I'm getting ready to share to you. They were, they were telling this. And early in his days as at First Baptist Atlanta, he was an associate pastor. He'd been there two years. He was about 39 years old, and the, the senior pastor steps down. So during that time, interim time, he begins to fill the pulpit. He preaches. And he finds great favor with the church. Great favor. But there were seven men who ran that church, God forbid. But they ran it. And everyone knew it. They didn't like him. Their, their two main criticisms of him was he's too young. And he's too evangelistic. True. So they purposed to get rid of him. They're going to fire him. And um, he had a practice. Dr. Stanley had a practice when he was wrestling with adversity. And here's what he would do. He would take a gallon jug of water. For me, it'd probably be Coke, you know, but isn't that terrible? He'd take a gallon jug of water, legal pad, and his Bible, and he would get away. And his son's recounting the story. So he gets away because he's wrestling with this. He doesn't believe that, he believes he's supposed to be there, but he needs to seek God and find out what God is saying to him. So when he comes back, Andy Stanley, his son says that his legal pad was full of notes. And he gathers his family and he tells them this. I believe God wants me to be here. By the way, the business meeting to fire him was going to be the next day. <laughs> he says, I believe God wants me to be here. And so no matter what happens tomorrow, no matter what happens, whatever news comes, I'm to receive it with joy. And I'm to believe that it comes from the Lord. Whatever. So he goes to the meeting the next day. The seven men are there. They're going to fire him. He's afforded an opportunity to speak on his behalf. He has a microphone. He's sharing the reasons that God revealed to him that he should stay. One of the seven men gets up, goes down and says, hey, we've heard enough from you. Uh, I'm going to take your microphone. And, and he curses at Dr. Stanley. And this, this, business, this place is packed. He curses at him and Dr. Stanley rebukes him. The guy punches him in the face. Punches him. He responds with joy. Does not strike back. Meanwhile, before that, there was a nomination from the floor to make him the senior pastor. And there was a second. The seven are going to override that. It's, they said it's invalid. We're going to move on. They're going to fire him. A dude in the very back row of the meeting stands up and he said, you're out of order. And by the way, that guy, his dad wrote Robert's Rules of Order. <laughs> he says there's been a motion made and seconded to, fire, to hire him as the senior pastor. They voted and 65% of people voted for him. And he served as pastor there 49 years. Now, the rest of the story is this. Those men quit. 
The entire choir almost quit. This is what Andy and Louis Giglio were saying. Their church decreased in size tremendously. But as God moved, revival came to that church. And they exploded in growth. In touch ministries. Do any of you guys know that? The ministry at all? I guess I'm dating myself, but it's it's amazing. Can we respond to adversity with joy? I have a few questions for you as we as we get ready to close. As a church, like Calvary Chapel, are we willing to accept revival from unexpected sources? Unexpected people. I believe God is going to gather people from the east and the west and the north and the south. They're going to come here looking for a city to dwell in. Will we receive them? I'm going to ask you individually, your small groups in your life, are you willing to think outside the box and embrace someone that's not like you, that doesn't have the background, maybe generationally? Are we willing to do that? To welcome them? To fellowship with them? Are we willing to be others-oriented? Will we prefer others? Without Barnabas, would we have had, would Saul have become Paul? Are you willing to decrease so another might increase? Is diversity reflected in our leadership? And may I just say today, beloved, that true racial and economic unity will be found only in the gospel. Nowhere else. Are we ascending church? We can give a resounding hallelujah to that. Or can we not? Both from our to the ends of the earth expression to go huddo that Pastor Trey talked about today. We are all about reaching our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Praise the Lord for that. But in your life, are you living as one sent? And here's the last thing I want to ask you to consider. Will you respond to adversity with joy? Are you willing to embrace it in the midst of revival? Not only to embrace it, but to recognize that it's from the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. The timeless compass that it is. That no matter what situation we face in our life, we can look to Your Word and know that it will point us in the right direction. It will give us the correct path to walk. Thank you for your word today. And Lord, my prayer for each of us in here today is that your word, as it penetrated our souls, would, would re, that we would respond in action. To reach out. To receive adversity with joy. To, to think outside the boxes in our lives. I ask this in the name of Jesus for His glory and our good. Amen.